uh, Sean, would you do a couple things? Leave those doors open and crack the windows a little bit, even though the people sitting near them will suffer. Um, <laughs> there'll be bodhisattvas for the rest of the people in the room for their, for their breathing, so we all have to share in the tending of the planet some way or other. Thank you. So please let yourself sit and listen in a way that is uh, at ease. This is not a kind of teaching where you get the exam at the end, um, no quiz. It's really at best a reminder of something that you already know to be true, a kind of touching of something that's, that's already wise in your own heart. And if it's not, or if there are things that don't ring right, just ring true, then let them go. And um, the other day, uh, I think it was yesterday, my good friend and colleague here, Robert Hall, who just finished a retreat that ended yesterday morning in this uh, in this room, um, led an afternoon for experienced practitioners. And a lot of what he did was simply make a place for people to tell their own stories of both uh, high points and illuminations and learnings and and also the great difficulties they'd passed through over 10 or 20 or 30 years. And there's a way in which I regret we can't do this on Monday night. Um, And I'm thinking that we should make another night which is just that for people to meet. And Because it's a little imbalanced to have one guy sitting up here (laughs) basically blabbing and everybody listening. Um, Because I know you all have your own stories and your own wisdom um, and your own very deep experience. Um, And for me, it's a privilege to be here and teach. And in in a lot of ways, as as you probably know, um, we teach what we need to learn. And teaching in that sense is a kind of a practice of talking about things that I really want to remind myself about. So over the past few weeks, um, the themes that we've been talking about in Buddhist psychology or Buddhist teaching are what are called the sublime abodes or the descriptions of the liberated heart. And in particular of the qualities that grow as freedom in us grows. We talked about joy and what it means to uh, allow ourselves to live and feel joy even in the midst of the difficulties of this world. And we talked about and worked with practices of compassion for those very difficulties. Um, We have not yet talked about equanimity and peace, that's coming. But tonight it will be metta, loving kindness, um, one of these sublime abodes. Um, And all of these are expressions of the freedom of heart, the freedom, the free heart that's not caught in confusion and fear and grasping and and, uh, judgment, but is actually free to love. So in the ancient texts and the words of the Buddha, let no one deceive another or despise another being in any state. Hi, Ruby. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. As a mother watches over her child, willing to risk her own life to protect her beloved child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all beings 
all living beings suffusing the whole world with unobstructed loving-kindness. These are these words, 2,500 years, wishing may all beings be happy. May they live in safety and joy. All living beings, whether weak or strong, tall, stout, average or short, seen or unseen, near or far, born or yet to be born, may they all be held in loving kindness. May they all be happy. Let your heart full of love pervade one quarter of the world and so too the second and third and fourth and thus the wide world above, below, everywhere pervaded with love-filled thoughts and intentions abounding sublime beyond measure free from fear, confusion and ill will standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours mindful of this heart and this loving way of living that is best in the world. So that's the traditional text from what's called the Metta Sutta, or the text on loving kindness. Um, And in a certain way, loving kindness is also that capacity that we have uh, to be present without being so afraid in some some deep way to allow ourselves to open to the to the mystery of life. Nisargadot, who was one of my teachers, a guru in Bombay, said, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of the love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this, make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them for you are all of this and beyond. So when he says deny yourself nothing, I don't think he's talking about a latte, you know, or... (laughs) you know, an extra portion of thanksgiving, although you can work that out with your body. Um, But he's really talking about giving yourself to what is the freest and most beautiful in your own heart and being. And when you enter a forest monastery or temple of the kinds that I trained in Southeast Asia, these great old jungles and trees, there's a kind of stillness there and a quality of respect where the monks and nuns will step over the trails of the ants, you know, and care for every little living being there is is tended to or or respected or, or in some way met with the spirit of friendliness and kindness. And there comes in that a great stillness Not the stillness of the lack of activity, but when there's love, there's a kind of silence that grows because we're not in conflict with the world. We're actually able to be open to one another or this life as it is. Now, all this sounds very nice, right? Sort of the nicey-nice part, love everything. This from Alison Luderman, one of my favorite poets, from Oakland, she writes, don't tell anyone, but even as a good Jewish girl, I love Jesus. 
I love his dark, semitic eyes and how his friends are all the poor and the prostitutes and how he will even go to hell for love. He's just like that Buddhist bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, except his name is easier to pronounce. (laughs) It's hard to yell for Avalokiteshvara when you're in big trouble, but oh Jesus comes naturally to the lips. I just don't want to die saying, oh shit. I'd rather die like a llama, lie on my right side, turn my head in the direction of my next birth. I know I'd have to meditate a lot to do this well. And let's face it, there aren't enough years left in my life to get that enlightened. And following Jesus seems so much easier. All you have to do is love everyone. Well, seems is the critical word here. Sometimes it seems impossible, especially with the particular people close around you. But then, if you really look, you realize, what else is there to do? What else is there to do? So love is a mystery. Um, Nobody really knows what it is. It's like gravity, and there are equations about gravity, but nobody knows what gravity is. It just pulls things together. And that's really what love is. I think that love is an expression of the Big Bang or the Big Flash, longing for itself again to go back and all be connected, which it actually is and always was. We were all part of that big star. And now we're kind of little pieces of it wandering around. The most beautiful and profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystery, says Einstein. It is the the seed of all true science. And to whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. Tough words from Albert. Uh, You know. But it is, it's so, nobody knows how we got here or what consciousness is, you know, or what happens when you die, really, or where you came from before you were born. Right, Ruby? Maybe you remember, but, you know, she's not telling. Um, Or the extravagant collisions of galaxies. I mean, I get online... Um, the opening page is the astronomy picture of the day. And it just knocks your socks off. I mean, these are just incredible images of galaxies and, you know, dancing with one another. Billions and billions of stars. And who knows? I mean, nobody can explain this stuff, really. As Walt Mittman said, a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. And Alice Walker who writes, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about, but any fool living in the world can see it's always trying to please us back. And so love is this mystery of, uh, like gravity, allurement, where we're, we're attracted to one another. Um, we want it. As the poet Hafiz says, admit it. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. (laughs) Of course you don't do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Still though, think about this, this great pull to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language, 
what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Admit it. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me in some way or other. But this love, this mysterious quality is really a stepping out of, maybe it's not even right, I was going to say, it's stepping out of the small sense of ourself, what's called the body of fear, to allow something bigger to be born in us. But the reason that I'm hesitant when those words come out of my mouth is it means even loving the small sense of yourself. And, you know, Ramdas said at one point, you know, in all his years of practice, he'd become a connoisseur of his neuroses. You know, it wasn't that he'd gotten rid of them, but he could say, oh, there, that too was something to be loved. But somehow to step out of the limitations of our thoughts and our sense of ourselves and just let the world touch us and and touch it back. A poem for you. This is from... Uh, Where are we? Tess Gallagher, and she's writing about hugging a homeless man. Clearly, a little permission is a dangerous thing. But when you hug someone, you want it to be a masterpiece of connection. The way the button on his coat will leave the imprint of a planet in my cheek when I walk away. When I try to find some place to go back to, the place of belonging that he and I really inhabit. A masterpiece of connection. You know, imagine. But we do, we do know this. We do have these hugs. We do know what it is to touch the world in this way. And it's weird because we live in a culture that has a lot of loneliness and isolation. I, myself, I hate loneliness. And it's been a very, very hard thing when I kind of look at what, what I've struggled with in my life. I think that, uh, um, I mean, it was, I'm a twin, and I somehow think that I got somebody to come in the womb with me so I wouldn't be lonely. I really do, <laughs> you know. And then I had that shock one day in my marriage early on, where I thought, okay, I'll get married and I won't be lonely anymore. One day we were sitting having breakfast, and I realized I was lonely, you know, and that it didn't actually have to do with that other person. But you see one person in a car driving, everybody one in their own little, you know, world, and everybody has their own room, and, and we're lonely. Um, there's a lot of isolation in the culture. Um, and out of it grows more fear and confusion and misunderstanding between people, and it's there anyway, globally, and the kinds of distrust and um, racism and intolerance and so forth. Um, And we want to learn somehow how to not live in that world because we can sense in ourselves that there are other worlds to live in. We are the world in a way and we create the world. So how to do this? Joan Baez writes, if it's natural to kill, why do men have to go into training to learn how? Or Nelson Mandela saying sort of the same thing. If people can be taught to hate, they can also be taught to love. All the modern neuroscience research, neuroplasticity, transformations of the brain, it's really just to return to some original capacity that's born into you from ancient time. 
And here's a, here's a description, maybe in another way, of this tending. This is from M.C. Richards. Um, she writes, how are we to love when we are stiff and numb and distracted? How are we to transform ourselves into limber and soft organisms lying open to the world at the quick? By what process, what agency do we perform the great work transforming lowly materials into gold? Love, like its counterpart death, is a yielding at the center, not in sentiment nor the genitals. If you look deep into my eyes, you'll see the love light. It is the center in every being. One gives up all one has for this, for at the center love must live. It's the love that resides in us, the self-love out of which all love pours, the fountain, the source. At the center, one gives up all the treasured sorrow and mistrust. It's an amazing phrase, all the treasured sorrow and mistrust, all the precious loathing and suspicion, all the secret triumphs of withdrawal. One bends in the wind. There are many disciplines that strengthen one's athleticism for love. It takes all one's strength, and yet it takes all one's weakness too. Sometimes it's only by having all one's so-called strength pulverized that one is weak enough, strong enough to yield. It takes the power of nature in which, which is neither strength nor weakness, but just life. Don't speak about strength or weakness or aggression or submissiveness. Look at a flower or a child. Look at this rock with lichen growing on it. Listen as the gull screams when he drops through the air to gobble the bread I throw and clumsily writes himself in the wind. Love is not a doctrine. Peace is not an international agreement. Love and peace are beings who live as possibilities within us always. It's a long thing to read, but it's also beautiful. Um... And it asks something of you as you listen. What is it that will awaken in you this ability, this capacity? What is it that touches it and brings it alive and nourishes it? Because while it is our true nature, it's also a practice, a training, if you will. Yes, it's an expression of freedom because we're free to love. That's your great freedom. You could love no matter what. You can love. There's, and metta, which is the word, that sutra that I read, the Buddhist text, is also sometimes translated simply as friendliness. You can befriend yourself and every other being that you meet. Friendliness of heart, friendliness of caring. I remember my teacher Gosananda the Cambodian Gandhi figure with whom I practiced and lived and worked over the years. And he, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize several times and um, led the Cambodian delegation to the United Nations for the peace talks, mostly he spent his time leading uh, leading peace walks across the war-torn parts of Cambodia, chanting the text of loving-kindness. And behind him would be hundreds of villagers trying to return to their ruined villages 
Um, and he said, you can't go back by bus or by jeep or by car. You have to walk and you have to sing the prayer of loving kindness with every step you take so that you reclaim this land that has been so traumatized by war and fear that you reclaim it with love. And he'd be walking along and people would come out of the bushes, somebody who was cutting wood or somebody who was planting rice and they would just kneel by the side of the road and weep as he walked by with these hundreds of people singing the song of loving kindness, planting these seeds again. This is the practice of loving kindness, the practice of friendliness. And we can practice it in our own lives. Now, in Asia, in the Buddhist temples and the traditional practices of loving kindness, you start with yourself. The Buddha said you can search the whole vast universe and not find anyone more worthy of love than the one seated right on your own seat. Because the things we don't accept or love or cherish or treasure in ourselves, we also can't cherish in another. But turns out it doesn't work that way so well in the West. People have seen this, that we're so hard on ourselves. There's so much unworthiness, self-hatred, judgment, that a lot of people wishing themselves well, it feels like a weird thing to do. And can I want to be happy? That feels egotistical or wrong. It doesn't fit with who I know myself to be. But actually what it doesn't fit is who I think myself to be. It's not who you really are. And sometimes I give a really, really hard practice to people who've been on retreats and ask me, is there some training I could do to kind of deepen my meditation? I'll say, sure. You really want something to deepen your practice? Do a year of loving kindness only for yourself. Oh no, anything but that. Stop, you know. Oh, that's horrible. What will I do? You can feel how, how demanding that would be for most people. But the beautiful thing about the practices or the trainings of loving kindness is that you're supposed to start where it's easy. Unlike mindfulness practice where you take the seat as the Buddha in the center of the universe and say, all right, let me bow to whatever comes, the sorrows, the joys, the pains and difficulties and anguish and delight and and just I will sit as the Buddha in the midst of it and open my heart to all of this, which is profoundly liberating. I will find a space of awareness like we did in our sitting that can let all of this be met with attention and mindfulness and not be thrown about by it. I'll keep my seat, if you will. Keep this connection with the earth and with the freedom that is the space of awareness itself. But loving kindness, instead of saying, all right, you know, bring it on, basically, the practice says, start where it's sweet. Start where it's easy. And I tell this story sometimes when my friend James Barris was doing a long retreat. Maybe he was leading it, loving kindness meditation retreat, and somebody came up and said, I don't know whether I should use... I can't do love for myself very easily. I want to do a benefactor, some friend, someone, start where it's easy, where someone who's loved me, but I can't decide whether to use the Dalai Lama or my dog, basically. (laughs) So, 
James, I think, had him close his eyes and kind of do a little inner meditation and check first with the Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama said, you know, whatever works for you is fine with me. You know, it's all right. He's just very blessing about that. So then this guy visualized his dog, you know, and he opened the door and the dog's there, the tail's wagging. (laughs) And the dog says, me, 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 you know, if you're going to do it. (laughs) You know, unconditional love, but me first, right? (laughs) But you start with what opens your heart naturally and whatever that is, then you let that stream start to flow and move and gradually you bring in other people you love and things that you care about. And little by little, the heart opens and then you, you know, in the technology, the inner psychology of it, you get to a point where you start to do neutral people or people that are difficult, difficult ones. And your heart's open and loving and then you think, all right, now I'm going to bring in this person that's really kind of difficult. And you go, I hate them. Right? I don't want to bring them in. I'm having such a great feeling, I hate them. I don't want this to go away, they're going to ruin it. And your heart starts to close and shrink and shrivel. And you go, oh, I hate this feeling too. I want back that big love, but to have it, I guess I'm going to have to love them too. And so you're okay. Not for your sake, but just because it feels so, it feels so painful to close the heart. It's just such a painful way to live. You say, okay, all right, I'll even love you because it's a better way to live. And then, of course, after a while, you fall in love with everybody. But, you know, that's, you'll have to deal with that later. Now, it's not just an emotion. It is really a training. So sometimes you get a warm, loving, intense, amazing feeling. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's just friendliness. Sometimes metta or loving-kindness is expressed simply as a kind of respect. Let's see, where did I put this? Hmm. This from a poet named Alta. Loving your neighbor is all very fine when you have nice neighbors. (laughs) This is why people choose the town they live in. We all want nice neighbors. It's the folks in the next town who are the bad guys. You'd be amazed how citified folks hate the people in the suburbs. Not the suburbs, the people in them. But would they want us living next door? I ask you. And Joan of Arc was noisy. She must have made a lousy neighbor. And Jesus given everything away. And Gandhi a walking guilt trip. Some people make nicer neighbors than others, but there you have it, city planning. Funny how we start in on politics, on war and peace, yet all the while we talk about love. It's not easy, you know, Annie Lamott, my friend, said that my mind is like a bad neighborhood, I try not to go there alone. You know, that's her description of meditation. And you sit down... And close your eyes, and we did it tonight, and what you get is your own talk radio, basically. And it's on 24-7. The judge and the jury and the inner Berlin Wall, right? And the ocean of tears and the fires of wanting and the terror alerts and the collective sorrows of the world that you remember from seeing it on television or hearing about it. And the creativity you have and the longing and the beauty, and you get the whole whole thing. And to have the quality of love somehow 
is to say, yes, this is, this is humanity. This is what your incarnation is. It's what it means to be born as a human being. Um, what Oscar Wilde called the, the tainted glory of humanity. You know, it's, it's pain and pleasure and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist, he writes, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary just to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? So you see it, it doesn't take very long. And I think it was Carl Sandburg's word, the mob within the heart. You just start to see, we have it all in us. So what does it mean to have loving kindness? In that way, it's the quality of respect. And I went to practice and work with Dora Kolf, who was the uh, founder of Jungian sand play therapy, an old Jungian analyst in Zurich, who was my wife's a main teacher. And Dora had been a student of the Dalai Lama for years. And she was the, a woman that Carl Jung said, you're so good with children, you should try to make this analysis work with children. And she had sand play therapy is, is sort of like dreaming out loud, li- these little sandboxes and a wall of 10,000 figures of trees and cars and houses and animals and, and uh, soldiers and, and plants and everything you can imagine. Um, and even if you're not very good, you're sort of artistic dodo, it doesn't matter. You just take things, you know, you take the, the, the blue horse or the dragon or the, you know, the tree or the crystal or whatever, and you make a scene in the sand and it's like dreaming out loud and all the things that are in you show themselves. So I went to be with her and she has this old house on the lake in Zurich from the 11th century in this big old room with 10,000 figures and she was the old master. And I'd done this before, but I wanted to, wanted to kind of get the instructions from her mouth how to do this. And I came in and it was, it was cool and you could see the garden outside the window and all these figures and she had lit a candle and there was this tray of sand for me to let out whatever I needed to. And I said, so what should I do? And she looked back, she was this old wise woman, and she smiled, she said, anything you like. And it was there was just something in the moment of her saying anything you like that w- was like I'd waited lifetimes to hear those words. And I, st- I started to pick symbols and make scenes that weren't just about I'm having a hard day, but were the deepest fears and longings all coming out because she made a place of such respect and such love that all of it could open in some way. Now, when my daughter was younger, there is a woman in our community, Lisa Hamburger, who was the primate keeper for the San Francisco Zoo. Um, And we talked different times about her kids, the chimps and the gorillas and so forth. And she invited us to come down. So I went down with my daughter's uh, school. We brought a number of her classmates down. And first, Lisa introduced us to the chimps. And the chimps were really cool. And the kids were, you know, these were like, it was elementary school, third, fourth, fifth graders. They loved the chimps, you know, and playful and passing these back and forth. And then she said, do you want to meet the gorillas? 
Okay. Hmm. She said, now you know how you approach a gorilla. Well, no, said the children, nor I. She said, well, they're big, so you have to approach them very respectfully. And the way you approach a gorilla is that you lower your eyes and you kind of sidle up. You don't kind of march up like this. You kind of sidle up. And then if you want their attention, you clear your throat <clears throat> like that. Um, and they'll know, then they'll know that you want to have a conversation. So here's a class of like 15 little kids, right? And we didn't go in the gorilla enclosure, I mind you, but just up to the edge of it. And people are whizzing by, you know, with their strollers or their bikes or all the things. And the gorillas are completely ignoring everybody and going about their gorilla day, whatever they did. The big silverback male and the younger gorillas and all doing their thing. So these kids kind of sidle up with their eyes down like then they get near the right at the edge of the closure and they go <coughs> you know as the little kids and the silverback male looks up looks over like oh somebody wants to talk to me and kind of clambers over and so forth and the other gorillas come and it was such a beautiful moment um, to learn to touch with respect that which we have feared whatever it happens to be is a part of love to touch that which we fear in our bodies, to touch that which we feared and closed off in the heart, those stories and the parts of the mind that we've closed down. So this love also has a kind of forgiveness in it. A poem from Ed Brown, Zen master, cook extraordinaire, which he wrote years ago when there was still the kind of danger of nuclear war on alert in the 70s or 80s. At any moment, preparing this meal, we could be gassed 30,000 feet in the air, soon to fall out poisonous on leaf and frond and fur. And still we cook, putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish and reassure those close and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I withheld for so long. And in some ways it's that simple. Because it's always the last instant. What's going to happen tomorrow? Raise your hand if you know. We'll all go into the market with you, right? Nobody knows. It is so mysterious. That's part of what makes us alive, is that we don't know. And we have to live in this mystery and rest in it. And rest then not in the control stuff, which we do and that's okay, we're, we're afraid. But really to learn to rest in the place of the heart that says we're given this life and we can rest and we can love. So what else really matters? To be enlightened, says the Zen ancestors, is to be without anxiety about imperfection. It's not perfect, the world, according to your ideas. I mean, there are moments, and you had them, when everything does seem perfect, and it's amazing. But to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about imperfection. Or another way to put it, the point isn't to perfect your personality or your mind or your life in some way, not to perfect yourself, 
but to perfect your love. And it can be, I mean, it is in the intimate small ways. When somebody came up to me, um, we used to have a children's class year round for Monday night. Now it's mostly in the summer. And she said, I think this stuff is working because I was driving home from Monday night class and my seven-year-old and my eight-year-old were starting the fight that they have often in the back seat. And my eight-year-old turned to the seven-year-old and said, could you please just move over and help me with my practice of nonviolence? <laughs> I mean, it's that basic, you know. And this from Susan Griffin, where she says, Love more often is to be found in kitchens at the dinner hour, tired out and hungry, lingers over tables in houses where the walls record movements, while the cook is probably angry and the ingredients of the meal are budgeted, while somewhere a child cries, feed me now, and our mother is not quite hysterical, says over and over, just wait a bit, wait just a bit, just a bit. Love should grow up in the fields like a wild iris, but never does. It grows in the kitchen. It's small ways. But in it, we remember who we are. And, and one of the beautiful things that happens here um, on retreats is as people get quiet and the kind of, you know, two days, four days, if you're a week or ten day retreat, after three or four or five days, the mind starts to get quiet. You dip into the silence. There's more spaciousness. Um, and and when you're not so busy, you realize you love things. You go outside and you see, you know, a tree, a flower, a stone, and it's like you're two years old again. Hey, hello. A few days ago, late in the evening, this was on a long retreat, I was sitting quietly in the back of this meditation hall, and it was raining and the room was dark except for candles on the altar. And it felt like we were all camped around a sacred fire. And everyone sat so still and my breath almost stopped. And I wondered what it was, the feeling. And then I realized, ah, this is contentment. There was nowhere else on earth I wanted to be and no one else I wanted to be with. I was peaceful and deeply silent. And all my struggles had dropped away and I was content. I felt truly blessed. This is Naomi Newman. And all of a sudden it felt like the blessings couldn't contain themselves and I began blessing everyone in the room one by one, their backs or the back of their heads. And even the ones I couldn't see so well, I would shoot some blessings around a chair or into a leg or a hand until I got everyone in the room. And we sat in a sea of blessings until the bell rang and I've been smiling since then. Littlest ways we remember what matters. And the capacity grows in us and we can each sense it. A story or two and then we'll do our practice. That one I'll save for next time. Different story. We can sense it grow and it grows even though there is dukkha, which is the Buddha's word for the sorrows of the world, gain and loss, praise and blame, 
birth and death. Um, even though there still remains hunger and injustice and the follies, the insanity of racism and warfare and so forth, there's something in us that knows that there's another way. That that's what our dignity is, what our gift is, what our Buddha nature is, that we know this. But not for the faint-hearted. I remember this beautiful big Bodhi tree in Sri Lanka at, a, at one of the magnificent temples there. And there was a little English English saying underneath it that came from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha's words. And it says, the tree shelters and shades even the woodsman whose axe cuts it down. And that's a tough teaching, isn't it? doesn't mean you have to roll over and become, you know, the victim of people. But it means that you can love anyway. So Sylvia Borstein told this story. She was teaching in New York and a guy came up to her who'd been, I guess, in practicing metta and loving kindness. Um, and he'd been mugged at gunpoint um, a couple weeks before. He'd been doing his metta practice and he was walking down a street in the evening and part of New York and a guy came up to him, you know, and um, pulled out a gun. And the guy was, he said it was, this guy was sort of curly, blonde hair, beard, um, slightly dazed looking eyes like he was high on some kind of drug or something. He pulls a gun out. He says, give me your money. So what do you do? You pull out your wallet. He says, here. He says, no, 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 I want, I want your credit cards too. Okay, here. I want more. I want more. I'm going to shoot you. Give me more. Oh, okay, wait, wait. So he starts stalling. He says, well, I have some other things in my pipe. I have another credit card here. I'm going to shoot you. Wait, wait, wait a second. Here you can have this watch. And the guy's still pointing his gun. I'm going to shoot you. And finally after, you know, he's given everything he can, he says, you don't have to shoot me. And the guy says, I don't. No, no, man, you did good. You got credit cards, you got $700, you got a really good watch, you did good. The guy said, I did good. You did really good. You did good. Go show your friends you did really good. You don't have to shoot me. I did good. I did good. He put his gun down and kept the stuff and he walked away. And you laugh because it's funny, but it's also terrifying. And at the same time, there's something so deep in just telling somebody that you did good. Because in some way, like that poem from Hafiz, we're all, that moon language, we're all going around looking to be loved. We're also just all going around in some way looking for somebody to respect us, somebody to say we're okay, another version of this love. And it's tough. There's a kind of grace in it when we can feel it, when we can offer it, when when we can allow it to grow in us. Okay, before we do our last meditation, question for you. Reflect for a moment. We're not going to do the meditation yet, so relax. Reflect for a moment. And somebody or some moment that really touched you and reminded you of this love in your life. What was that moment? And there, you know, there could be lots of them, but you can just bring one to mind. Think of just a moment where you felt like you were loved 
in a beautiful and full way or you were reminded of what love could be. You saw love in action in some way that, that you knew this is it. And feel what it's like even to remember that, you know, what it does to your smile, if it does anything, what it does to your heart. And now, turn to a person next to you, we're going to take three minutes, and just tell them a tiny bit, one minute of that story, and they'll tell you who you remembered, what the little scene was, and two people, and if you need to, you can make it three, but short, you just very brief. So finish up. This is just brief. Take just a little more time. One more minute. How was that? Is that okay? You survived? <laughs> A moment of intimacy. Christmas morning, 1952, light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the Methodist church eager to get home and play with the present Santa had left for us and our baby sister Sharon. Across the street from the church was a Pan-American gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door, huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. 
I wondered briefly why they were there, but then forgot about it as I raced to keep up with Jill. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presence. We had to go off to our grandparents' house for Christmas dinner. As we drove down through town, I noticed the family was still there standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly down the highway. The closer we got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly, my father U-turned in the middle of the road and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am standing in the rain. They've got children. It's Christmas. I can't stand it. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was tall, had to stoop slightly to peer in the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the other three children, and they stared back at us. You waiting on the bus, my father asked. Man said they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing here. Winborn's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there, some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car and I'll run you up there? The man thought about it for a moment. Then he beckoned to his family. They climbed into the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. Once they were settled in, my father looked back over his shoulder and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave him his answer. Well, I didn't think so, my father said, winking at my mother, because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding y'all, and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go get them before I take you to the bus stop. And all at once, the three children's faces lit up, and they began to bounce around in the back seat laughing and chattering. When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door straight to the toys that were spread out under our Christmas tree. One of the girls spied Jill's doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball and the other girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. That was the Christmas when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join us at our grandparents' for Christmas dinner, but the parents refused. Back in the car on the way to Winburn, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. My father reached into his pocket and pulled out five dollars, which was all he had left till the next payday, pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted. It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and those children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before, and I know what it's like when you can't feed your own family. We left them at the bus stop in Winbourne, and as we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new doll. Loving kindness was first taught in the dark forest for monks who were afraid of wild beasts and ghosts. And the Buddha said, if you have a loving heart, you can go anywhere. You'll, your dreams will be sweet and you'll fall asleep easily. And as you do this practice, the 
angels and devas will love and protect you and men and women will love you and weapons won't harm you. And as you grow in love, if you lose things, they'll be returned to you and people will welcome you everywhere. Your thoughts become pleasant and animals sense this and love you and elephants will bow as you go by, it says. And your voice becomes sweet and your babies are happy in the womb and growing up. And if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. You do this as a little recitation when you do this practice. And the world becomes more peaceful around you and you start to see Buddhas everywhere you go. So let your eyes close for a few minutes. We'll end with a little of this practice. As you sit quietly, come back just to your breath and this miracle of being incarnated in a human body, halfway between heaven and earth, sitting like the Buddha in this human form that breathes itself, wakeful, present. And bring a tenderness to this amazing life you've been given. And maybe first, as you do, to make it easy, think of someone you love a lot, uncomplicated love. You just love them. Loved one, benefactor, someone you care about. And as you picture them, Offer your well-wishing, the intentions, these ancient phrases of loving-kindness. May you be held in great loving-kindness. And may you be safe in every way, safe from all things, protected this loved one. And may you be well in body and mind. May you be happy, happy and free. And feel how naturally you wish well to this person you care about. May you be held and filled with loving kindness. Be safe. May you be well in every way. May you be happy. free. Think of another person you love. Let the heart open further where it's so natural and easy or another being of any kind. And the same simple well-wishing and trust it. Sometimes you feel a lot. Sometimes you just feel 
the intention without any emotion. Sometimes it even brings up its opposite. That's fine. You're planting seeds and you visualize this next person you love. May you too be held in great loving kindness, filled with it. May you too be safe in every way, protected. May you be well, healed, body and mind. May you be happy, happy and free. And as you offer these intentions, as you plant the seeds of loving kindness, which you would do in this practice over and over and over again, they start to grow. You picture these loved ones and feel the care and let it be nourished in you. And now imagine these loved ones could look into your eyes, could see you, what they would wish for you. And they would wish the same thing. May you too be held in great loving kindness, filled with it. You can wish it for yourself as they wish it for you. May I be held in loving kindness, filled with it. They would wish you to be safe. Feel that wish from them. May I be safe. And how you protect yourself if you're out in the street and a car comes racing along, you jump back out of the way. You treasure this life. Feel this treasuring of yourself. May I be safe. May I be well and healed, body and mind. They want this for you and you can wish this for yourself. And how they would wish for you to be happy. May I be happy, truly happy. And let the quality of loving kindness for those two that you love and yourself now fill the whole room and all those seated around you. Be included in the heart of loving kindness. All be well and safe. And all be truly happy. And let the feelings of love radiate from this room in every direction. Like a beacon, a lighthouse, 
to beings, human, non-human, far and near, the Bay Area and the state of California and the continent of North America and the whole globe and beyond, that your heart wishes well for beings, just as we wish loved ones close to us well, may all beings be held in great loving kindness. Beings everywhere, far and near, young and old. May all beings be safe. Seen and unseen. Those we know and those we don't. May all beings be well. And may beings everywhere be free. May they find that great freedom of heart that is their true nature. And last, come back to feel yourself seated here and know that the treasure of loving kindness, the great heart of a Buddha, is who you really are. Trust it. Awaken to it. Live from it. Die from it. Let it guide your life. May it be so. So I thank you for your kind attention. Um, these are teachings that are ancient and contemporary. Take them for whatever, in whatever way they serve you. And let's just sing an ah before we go out into the cool evening. Ah, add harmony, ah. Blessings this week. See you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.